Hello, and welcome to a pandemic podcast. Welcome, listeners. A pandemic is still happening, and we're going to talk about it. Today, you're in for a good treat. Today, we're going to be talking about framing. And we're going to be talking about it in the sense of social sciences and the culture we live in. So framing, it's a set of concepts and it's a set of perspectives of how individuals, groups, and societies organize, perceive, and communicate what's happening and what's going on. And framing can manifest itself through thought and through interpersonal communications. And it's how messages can be portrayed and twisted and warped. And we've seen a lot of that in this pandemic. My name is Cheryl, and Pandemic Podcast is comprised of myself, Kay, and Chris, and we're going to be diving into this topic. So let's talk about it. Chris, fill us in on what the idea of framing is, please. Sure. Framing is a, is a concept where in communications, particularly political communications, phrases and words in the delivery of concepts are crafted very carefully. And words are used, specific words, specific phrases are used to germinate bigger ideas in people's minds based on their own lived experience and how they interpret those concepts. But it also allows us, for people who have sort of a understanding that this is happening, to step back from what's being said and kind of consider the language that's being used and what language is not being used, what that language means in a public vernacular, and how people interpret it and what kind of ideas they infer from that specific language. And that allows us to peek a little bit behind the veil and see some intent in the message that's being put across. Recently, we published a piece on this on our Substack called Manufacturing Apathy. We'll put a link in the description. And in that, we look at the concept of framing in, in government pandemic rhetoric. And we, throughout that, we assert that much of this benign language being repeated across the entire pandemic, across the country and across the world is chosen for its ability to coax people into a frame of mind. And it carries with a, a sort of subtle payload of implication, which nudges people toward basically being unconcerned and accepting and normalizing a consistently high level of death and disease. It's something that we look around and we are like, how can people look at this and, and not be shocked? How can people not be mortified or concerned? And it really comes back to the messaging that's come and what kind of concepts that places in people's minds. So maybe we can take a look at some of the rhetoric that we talk about in that piece. And talk about the framing and what the statements that they make, that the politicians, that public health makes, cause people to infer about the pandemic, uh, about the status of the pandemic, and whether or not that inference is actually the case. And in the piece, we start off with one that is fairly recent uh, here in New Brunswick. Our chief medical officer of health, Jennifer Russell, has stated on multiple media interviews that New Brunswick's COVID landscape is, quote unquote, stable. Now, this is a very strong, uh, very loaded word. 
conservatively, the idea of stability is going to lead people to believe that risk is not increasing and that government's policies have worked and therefore they are defensible. But stable is a is a very loaded word. Stability is often synonymous with safety, uh, lack of concern, a lack of threat. Specifically in medical context, quote unquote, stable is what everyone wants to hear following threatening circumstances, right? And the truth here is that all this means is, in, a, in a literal sense is that the metrics aren't appreciably changing week to week. They're staying high and resulting in New Brunswick are dying every day, more or less. The stable level of infection results in thousands of New Brunswickers developing long COVID with no prospects of treatment. And the end result, of course, is that the public here develops this kind of false sense of security and safety because stability to them means lack of concern, means they're safe. And without any kind of change in the perception of the hazard that's out there or, 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 or a lack of a situational awareness of what is out there, we don't get any push for public health to increase precautions, to mandate anything that would protect people. And therefore, public health continues to do nothing and, and people continue to become sick and disabled and die. And the term stable, it's it's very manipulative and nefarious to use because they could have said cases remain high and that would have been 100% accurate but saying things are stable and it's like yeah things are stably bad things are stably high but just saying things are stable and it's like well factually true that doesn't mean it's not a problem and, and they, they're not doing anything about it. Things are stable and they're not even talking or thinking about doing anything to improve the situation at all. Like it's really remarkable to have gone from two weeks to flatten the curve, them actively talking about improving things and, and reducing transmission and reducing the burden of this disease. But they don't talk about that anymore. <laughs> they don't talk about getting current levels of death, disability, and other consequences any lower than they are right now at all. It's just not done. Uh, somebody had brought up the point, nobody in power, in positions of power and authority is talking about what success would look like anymore. They're always oh, reacting. They're always on the back foot. They're always just justifying and trying to hand wave things away. And they're not talking about success. And I think this was part of Justin Feldman's presentation on how to hide a, a pandemic. There's no plan. They're not even going to talk about the fact that there's no plan because they don't want you to think that there should be a plan. If there's a plan, then there's still a problem. And the goal is for us to not think that there's a problem at all. There, there's no conversation about improving outcomes for anybody whether that is putting in place passive protections like cleaner air that don't result in people having to do anything like going to get a booster dose or having to put a mask on. And it's just really sad to think about how stably high the problem is. And it's like they've figured out, it's like when your toddler is pushing your boundaries to see like how much will you accept in terms of like bad behavior um, yes. or testing the limits and like public health and our conservative provincial governments and everybody else that's pro-virus has tested our limits. And apparently we don't have any, and we'll put up with a lot of missing people around the table. We'll put up with immunocompromised people, clinically vulnerable people, not being able to safely do anything, including seek healthcare. 
And that's not a limit for society. Society's been like, sweet, yay, no more masks at the dialysis unit. You know, like if they wanted to find out what the limits are, it's kind of terrifying what they've learned because it looks like people right now are willing to accept any level of really bizarre health circumstances and really bizarre heightened risks that we would not have accepted even in the recent past. It's one of the most strange things to witness, isn't it? That's why today's topic is so important because I've seen a lot of folks online say like, how is this happening? Like, why is this happening? How is everyone going along with this? And that's where kind of deconstructing this and trying to understand the greater societal mechanisms at play. Because very oddly and unfortunately, but enlighteningly so, a lot of the behaviors that we're seeing do have roots and evidence in psychological concepts and sociological concepts in different areas. And that's why having an understanding of, of framing and kind of being able to see what's happening under the hood can be so powerful. Kay, you mentioned that nobody's saying anything about improving outcomes and nobody's saying anything about reducing damage, but nobody's saying anything about outcomes or damage. They're not saying that at all. And the power of framing the entire status of the pandemic down to a single word, stable, removes all discourse about all elements of it. It gives people who don't have the time to leaf through studies or data a single point of reference and a calming point of reference so that they can go on with the way that they have been living, which is sort of in this manufactured safety that we'll see as we keep talking has been baby steps all the way along the way. I'm just so. kind of like sitting here staring off and just thinking, oh, this is, this is such a... That's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> It's such a heavy topic, but it's also like, it's so good to talk about as well, because it's kind of like shining a light in the darkness, you know, and kind of like, this is like a, a big dark area that I kind of can't think about it all the time. Or I kind of like do put it away for like my own mental capacity and just kind of like looking in and peering in and shining a light into it now. It's uh, I don't like what I'm seeing. Yeah, I just, I'm amazed that we can have this conversation and I'm really glad that we're having it. And I just want to like, for somebody who might be listening along, that this is maybe a little bit out there for them or it's new to them. I just want to bring up where I was and how I was feeling when I first started working with you, Cheryl, on tracking the school cases in New Brunswick in September of 2021. At that time, I was really resistant to believing that the government of New Brunswick was doing anything poorly on purpose. I really, truly had that 95% trust in the people in the positions of authority and power in the province regarding the pandemic. I'm not going to trust them with fracking. I'm not going to trust them with some of the other terrible things that have gone on here. But I really believed that there's no way that a physician or a group of physicians would do anything towards the public intentionally that would harm people. I really believed that the people that were making these tough decisions were doing it with the good of the public in mind. And I really, for myself internally, I made excuses for these people for a very long time. 
And Cheryl is somebody who could certainly see that dawning, really awful realization in me, seeing how things really didn't add up. And there was no longer a good faith explanation for why certain tactics were chosen and not others. For example, when they instituted a snitch line and Mm. they could have just instead told people it's airborne. Or like at any point, New Brunswick would have had the money to give out uh, masks. They didn't even have to be respirators, right? It would have been best if they were respirators and, and there would have been choices for that. There's so much that could have been done that would have made a difference. And instead, the choices that were made were like institute a snitch line where you could complain about people breaking the rules that at that point didn't even make sense with what was known about transmission. Like things had to get really quite bad for me to really accept that people were leaving a lot on the table and stuff that had strong evidence for it that just was never even discussed. And I was shocked in the fall of 2021 when this was happening. And here we are, and we are like four months into 2023 and things have gotten worse. We're actually in a far worse position right now than we were because we've squandered the province, the the people in charge have squandered the goodwill and the attention span of almost everybody. And there's a few good thinkers on COVID who have pointed this out, but we now have a segment of the population that is going to resist any public health measures under any circumstances, like avian flu could hit, Marburg virus could hit, and there's going to be a not insignificant portion of the population who just on principle, because they've been radicalized and also really let down by our government, they wouldn't accept any public health measures. We are in a way worse position than we were in some ways. I mean, in other ways, I think, Cheryl, you're really good for pointing out the fact that like, we know more now, we have more research, we do have some more resources. But I think that when you look at the big picture, when you look at any given province from a social cohesion and willingness to learn new information about specifically COVID, willingness to take action, we're in a really bad spot right now. And the scary thing is that it almost doesn't seem like anybody apart from specifically the COVID advocacy groups are interested or willing to try to improve that in any way. And I spend a a lot of time every week talking to people across the country about this stuff. I'm in multiple meetings a week with people from BC all the way to Newfoundland. And we all recognize that this is an absolutely huge job. It's huge for people to take this on as volunteers and as advocates. It's quite daunting to think about being some of the only people trying to reduce the burden of this disease because everything else seems like it's been just stripped away and poisoned. It's it's interesting. I don't know, maybe this is a, a, a conversation for another day because I, I, I do want to kind of uh, circle back to the social constructs. but. I know I have seen more people talking about why they are in COVID advocacy and why they are still wearing a mask or why they never stopped wearing a mask or maybe why they've started wearing a mask again and just kind of the different paths that have led them to that place. Some of them have similar threads and some of them have very different threads. It's interesting just to kind of think back to September of 2021 and kind of the place that I was in and I guess just kind of my own background and what informs me in being here now. And I know for me, 
part of what informs me is my own chronic illness and my own disabilities and my own long history of experiences firsthand with the healthcare system. And knowing that there are some wonderful people within that system that truly care and want to help. And then there's some other people that make things worse. And it's a very challenging, difficult system to navigate. And that's something that I went into the pandemic knowing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's unfortunately like a lot of people have learned that now. And then something else I suppose that informs where I'm at is also from when I used to be a public school teacher. So I kind of worked within that system and I was one of the cogs within the machine. And I found how not only could I not thrive within that system, but I couldn't survive in that system. It didn't work for me. That's definitely a conversation for another time. But that really informed my advocacy when it came to what was happening in schools because I had firsthand experience of how schools operate and how teachers are very busy. And there's a lot of stuff on their plate that just keeps getting added on. And there's some teachers who care immensely. And then there's some teachers that don't. Just like within the healthcare system, people are people. There's some that care immensely and there's some that don't. It's tough because if everyone actively worked to not cause harm, wow, what an incredible world we would live in. But that's not the case. And that's the world that we entered this pandemic in. And I guess that's the world that I knew about when I entered this pandemic. And, and I know that I've seen other folks talk about these experiences that they've had that have also informed them. It's interesting because we've had some of these conversations before about that September 2021 time and how, regardless of how cynical any particular one of us, because we had a, a quite a broad spectrum of cynicism and distrust. I don't, I think all of us can admit that compared to today, we were at least a little bit more naive. I know for myself anyway. I had a high degree of cynicism, but I didn't think it was this bad. And, and and I think too, just the public in general didn't think it was this bad. Like Kay mentioned, we think back to that time and we were talking about this before we started recording. There was a widespread moral outrage for anybody who dared to step outside of the broad mechanism of community solidarity that had been levied against the pandemic. We were all in this together. And people literally were, they were really putting the effort in to, to keep themselves safe, to keep each other safe. And we would have these situations where one, we hear one person acting poorly and people were outraged. And the concept of that snitch line, which they never did anything with, they never followed up on anything on that snitch line, but that it's kind of interesting because that is sort of like a precursor to some of the more explicit framings that we see coming out right after that time where they put this mechanism, in this case, it was a, a physical mechanism in place for people to satisfy their outrage without actually doing anything. It gave people an outlet for experiencing what had been interpreted by them at that point as inhumane behavior, as working against the group. And it kind of opened the door for what we'll get into next with, with some a lot of the language that started really pouring out from communications from government uh, after that. 
Yes. And that's, I, I think that snitch line is an excellent segue into that because it really shows, I guess, like for myself as someone from away from this culture, I find this place is very high on the importance of social conformity. And that snitch line was definitely indicative of that is that people really pride themselves in following the rules and following and maintaining social order, even if it's at the detriment of their neighbors. For sure. And it, it, it its very existence implies that the government understood that there was a moral horror that wanted to follow the rules and that work would have to be done if the government themselves was going to start going against all of the rules which had been in place for a year and a half. It totally does. Well, and that's where I've seen several surveys of people saying, if masks were re-implemented, would you wear one? And like 50%, 60%, like usually it is the majority that says, yeah. yes, they would wear a mask. Are we currently seeing 50%, 60% of people wearing a mask? No. Because they aren't mandated, they aren't required to, so they're going to go with what's required. And people are being told to assess your own risk, but then they're not being told what the risks actually are. So people in this culture look to what their neighbors are doing, look to what their friends are doing, look to what people in the media are doing and say, okay, well, none of these people are wearing a mask and I don't have to wear one, so it's probably fine. Yeah. And I think to back in the beginning, people would accept those requirements because they didn't have an understanding of what the situation was. And they looked to government to provide them with that understanding. Now they have all been so thoroughly nudged into believing that the pandemic is over, that were the government to implement a mask mandate, there would be pushback at the simplest level due to the presence of a mask mandate being completely dissonant with the narrative that they have accepted for going on a year and a half now. Mm -hmm. So maybe we could start there because really right after this time of the snitch line, after the September 21 Delta hits, we see across the country, there was an attempt just before Delta. They were already started to think about removing protections, you know, getting quote unquote back to normal. And then Delta hits, scares the shit out of everybody. They pull their pants back up and then it happens again with Omicron. And the first thing we hear before Omicron even gets to Canada is Omicron is mild. And I think the Omicron is mild framing is, is probably the deadliest communication to ever come out of public health because it was never properly communicated that the severity of an individual infection means nothing when the virus is so transmissible. And the public health response is so woefully inadequate that it can go on to infect 90% of the population. So being told that individual infections are quote unquote mild the public leaves that conversation with an inference that they can relax and, and, and safely contract this new variant without having to worry about serious consequences, you know, that we can, uh, we can all let our guards down. Of course, the incredibly high transmissibility of Omicron translates to orders of magnitude more cases and therefore orders of magnitude more hospitalization and orders of magnitude more death. Like that's just very simple math. The focus was always on severity because a focus on transmissibility would demand public health increase their mitigative measures and not abandon them. 
And, and you've made the point that prior to Omicron hitting, about 5% of New Brunswickers had had COVID. Is that about correct? Yep, 5%. And that went to 85% as of December 2022, the end of December. Oh my gosh. I used to post a lot more about COVID on Facebook. And people on Facebook, surprisingly, used to care. I had a memory of having this conversation several times on Facebook. So I just wanted to go back and look. And I did. December 13th, 2021, I was posting about how transmissible Omicron is and how breakthrough infections were just the total, the norm. Two doses of vaccine in multiple countries were not holding up against Omicron at all. At that point, vaccine doses for kids aged 5 to 11 in New Brunswick had only been available for about less than three weeks. So only one dose was possible for five to 11s at that point. And there was no vaccine for under fives. And so December 13th, I was posting about how super transmissible Omicron was and how, you know, the immune evasiveness was really bad and that vaccines were not going to meaningfully stop transmission. And I had people in my replies telling me already, and these are not like scientifically minded people. These were not people reading research. This was just people who would have picked this up from media and YouTube and whatever. December 13th, 2021, telling me that Omicron was mild in my replies. And so that is how ridiculously successful that framing was, was that I had people who I'm sure are not even thinking about COVID today but they were eager and gung-ho to reply to me to say, oh, but I've heard it's milder. People were really hungry, like the wishful thinking at that point. Like you got to remember what we had gone through at that point, right? Like it's all blurring together now. But in December of 2021, like people had already gone through all of 2020 and then they had gone through the hope of, oh my gosh, the vaccines are here. We just have to get this and this will be over, you know? And people were really riding high, like the 5 to 11 vaccine had just been released. That was a really big deal. People wanted it so bad they could taste it. And then this new, like this black swan event happens and Omicron comes and people were just like, no, like they didn't want to accept that at all. And so for somebody to just whisper in the ear, like it's mild, that was awesome. It was the red wine is good for you of COVID communication. And people were so hungry for it. Even at that time, even in December, early December, mid-December 2021, people without much of an interest in much of this stuff, they were already willing to debate that and try to claim that, that Omicron was mild. So I, I've been thinking about the mild thing, like, cause I spent a lot of time thinking about the airborne thing and people will have this debate, like which lie did the more, the more harm, the COVID is not airborne lie or the Omicron is mild lie. And I, I, I kind of think that I'm coming around more to the Omicron is mild as potentially yeah. being the, the more harmful lie. Yeah, I, I I tend to agree with you. I and it really was wish fulfillment, which I think led to this being so successful. The the uptake was right across the board. The false sense of security that people had was something that they that they desperately needed. They desperately wanted. They the public takes that on. They base their perception on individual severity that's given to them from public health narrative. And they really do believe that the overall hazard of COVID is reduced. So this in turn leads to a literal reduction in public precaution uh, and kind of detached acceptance of this beginning of removal of protections. 
And at least here in New Brunswick, Omicron ends up being responsible for six out of every seven deaths that have occurred, 874 COVID deaths, uh, which have occurred here in New Brunswick. Can you imagine if you heard that somehow in December of 2021? Baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. And if somebody would have looked you in the face in December of 2021 and said, 15 months from now, six out of every seven COVID deaths up to this point will have been from Omicron, like uh, people would have lost their minds. Like, If Dr. Russell or if somebody from on high had said, stop with this mild nonsense, we don't know enough yet. Look at how transmissible this is. Let's focus on stopping transmissions. Reputable places. We're talking about filtration, the fact that it's airborne. Like we could have pivoted. And and a lot of scientists were kind of screaming, like, this is your COVID is airborne off ramp. This is how you save face. Just we'll let you get away with it. Just pretend that it wasn't airborne until now. Just go with this Omicron thing and just embrace the airborne nature of transmission. And even if you want to downplay the previous airborne transmission, if you just start now with acknowledging that Omicron is airborne, that's okay. Like, let's just do that. But that's not what happened. That's not what we got. That's not the response that we got. It's really, it's, it's, oof, gosh, I don't know. It's something. You were talking about how people wanted that sense of security. The biggest sense of security that I've ever got is watching Kim Prather's webinar with the Collaborative for Health and the Environment, where she just straight up explained airborne transmission, explained respirators, and explained how air filtration works. I was like, oh, now I understand how this transmits. Okay, now I have the tools to move safely through this world. And if people wanted a sense of security, that's all it would have taken from our provincial public health, explaining that it's airborne and then allowing us as a community, as a province to decide on the solution. Why couldn't we harness the power of our province's ingenuity and desire to help and actually reduce transmissions of this disease instead of continuing to pretend it spreads by droplets? continuing to triple down on hand sanitizer for an airborne virus. The divergence from what was known and what would actually be effective, I guess it didn't matter as much up to this point because New Brunswick was controlling the virus through more like brute force, more restrictions on travel, more restrictions on contact. And they were seeing at least moderate to good success. And that approach, the flaws in that approach were really just ripped open with with Omicron coming. And it's like they just couldn't deal with that. I would say, why didn't we see the government go full on or our provincial government go full on COVID is airborne? The government is the biggest employer in this province. Often it's kind of framed as uh, who is the biggest private employer, but who is the biggest employer? It's the government. They employ people in hospitals and schools and public works. How many buildings of those have clean air, have good quality air, have actually been built since the 1970s? There are buildings that are known to have bad air that are known to have mold issues, that are known to make people feel sick when they work in them for too long, that are known to have asbestos, that are known to have a variety of different problems that people still actively work in. And that was an issue before the pandemic. The government is a business, and we currently have a businessman as our premier. If they went and said, COVID is airborne, we need clean air, they need to look at their own books and say, hey, we need to fix this. 
And that's going to cost them a lot of money. But then they can't parade around and say that they have a billion dollar surplus. Or it's also just easier to not do anything. There's a variety of different reasons for them not doing this. Is it negligence? Is it maliciousness? Is it fiscal mismanagement? They are biased. I guess that's the thing. It's, it's who watches the watchmen. They are the people in charge. And they are also employ so many people and also are in charge of so many buildings. They shouldn't mm. be the people making these decisions. That's the problem. They are not objective. And, and that's just a fact. Like there's no conspiracy there. They're, they are not objective. And that's interesting because I hear from people who say like that, for example, the occupational health and safety legislation that's on the books is law regardless of what provincial public health says, right? So if provincial public health says, hey, it's totally fine to make a pile of that asbestos siding and that asbestos hardboard and go and take a saw to it and then jump in the asbestos. You know, if, if provincial public health is telling you that something dangerous is okay, that doesn't excuse anything. Occupational health and safety law still applies. People should still be doing what's necessary to provide a safe workplace, even if provincial public health is totally screwing up. That's what people say. But in reality, when you go to contact WorkSafe or you go to contact EECD or you go to contact Horizon, our regional health authority, they all still point to provincial public health and they say, we follow these guys. We're listening to them according to provincial public health, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, but how do I get you to understand, even though you purposefully do not want to understand, but how do I get you to take your responsibilities seriously? How do we get there to be any accountability on this? That the problem is provincial public health and the information that they're providing, which is providing cover and you know legitimacy for politicians to do whatever they think is best and is not actually backed up by any evidence. And yet all these other institutions are just like, we're oh, following provincial public health. Like, okay. How awful does provincial public health have to be before you will realize that people are being harmed under the guise of provincial public health? How bad does it have to get? It's infuriating. And that's, I think, one of the things that I look at of just complete exasperation because it's like, okay, this is the government that was elected by the people. This government clearly doesn't care about the health and safety of the people as it's willfully creating policy that is actively killing people. This government doesn't care about its people. And I guess when I look at different countries that I'm more familiar with, I see governments that do care about their people. And I see governments that do take action to protect their children. And I do see governments that are creating safe spaces. And that's definitely not happening in New Brunswick. And I haven't seen that really happen anywhere in like Canada and the United States. And that's, I, I think that's a whole other topic of when it comes down to like, what is this culture? What is this people? What is New Brunswick? What is Canada? It's people who think this land is theirs, but it's stolen. And it's like you stole the land, you refuse to admit it, and now you're just killing your own people. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's so harmful. It's such a harmful, horrible culture. (laughs) 
It is. And and something that's come up in my mind, and I know I'm not the first one to think it or say it, but our stated values and our actual values that you can see from our actions are not the same. People will say to you, we care about kids. We want kids to be healthy. Oh, kids health is the number one most important thing. I'm doing it for the kids. Okay, well, you know, you can see from the data that we are harming the health of kids. People do not care. We just had an extreme fall. Um, the pediatric healthcare crisis that we just went through, it hasn't happened in, in maybe, what, 100 years. Like, that was extreme. And yet, when you talk to people, oh, of course, children's health is important and children's safety. But our actions that we take do not match our stated values at all to the point that our stated values are like worthless. And yeah, so I think it's an interesting time for reflection on what are our values because from the outcome of how we're living right now, it doesn't show that our values are what we say they are at all. I couldn't agree more. That, that concept of people's projected values versus their own is always very, very different. And when you think about the way that the government or you know systems of power employ the concept of framing and the mechanism of framing, they are depending on that fact. They're depending on people's actual morals, and they're depending on racism, and they're depending on homophobia, and and very specifically with COVID, they're depending on ableism and. And probably one of the most dehumanizing and othering frames around the same time as the COVID is mild one. It's the narrative that severe outcomes from COVID infection are limited to those with pre-existing conditions. And the creation and proliferation of this concept of the quote-unquote at-risk individual. So as part of the switch away from communal mitigation, we heard a lot more about the at-risk people. And this was kind of framed as a portion of the population whose continued anxiety or fear, you know, these these pejorative euphemisms that we that we kept hearing about was justified. But it was due to some kind of measurable physiological deficiency that existed only in them, right? Not you in these other people. And this is a straight line adoption of the eugenic Great Barrington Declaration stuff, which sickeningly sought to limit state efforts to protect the public from COVID to an imaginary population of, you know, broken people. So the rest of us could just get on with our lives unburdened by any requirement to give a shit about anyone. So in the establishment of the at-risk individual, when I think about this, it, it sort of accomplished two things. On the one hand, it allowed people to believe this comforting myth that they were no longer susceptible to negative COVID outcomes, right? That bad things only happen to the quote-unquote at-risk people, which is a vaguely defined group that very few people, even those with serious health issues, would ever assign themselves to. Second thing that it did uh, is it gave people sort of permission to further ostracize and other vulnerable populations, like dismiss their concerns as separate and therefore inferior to the concerns of the broader population. You know, the, these people were a minority. So the concerns of us wanting to live free and, and, and enjoy the brunch and, and and boost the economy have to logically outweigh the concerns of these people. And that made it acceptable and even appealing to make policies, which both indirectly and, and in some cases explicitly sought to harm the population of vulnerable individuals. 
this is this is just structural violence masquerading as as a great Barrington Declaration speech, like a targeted assistance. But it worked incredibly well. Like it allowed people to believe that COVID was only a real risk to the unhealthy and the the disabled, whatever that meant. These categories that the like I said, the vast majority of people would never include themselves in, regardless of the fact that forty four percent of Canadians are living with chronic illness. And and what I was getting at at the beginning is that, that this particular frame depends heavily on the population's innate ableism. Like our culture's overvaluation of sort of this capitalist gold standard of physiological wholeness results in a very well-established system of othering disabled people. It's always been there. It's always been the case. And then this the benefit of founding your frame on that innate ableism is then this circular logic gets applied whenever somebody is impacted by COVID where cause and effect get switched, right? Uh, they get reversed and it's concluded that, oh, this person that got long COVID or that got hospitalized or died must have been at risk. And that's why it happened to them. And that's why it's not going to happen to me. I remember when the pandemic first started, I learned a lot about different people in their responses to how they managed and how they reacted to a global pandemic and a virus and a threat to their health. A lot of the reactions I saw from people, I wouldn't have expected. And then in the spring of 2022, I got to again experience a reaction of people when the masks came off. The mask as in the mask that I still wear when I go out in public because I don't want to be a chain of transmission in airborne disease. And it's the masks that people happily threw away. And it's also their masks of caring for others that they happily threw away as well. The complete othering of people. I remember in the comment section of when deaths started to be announced during the pandemic and people were asking, what were their comorbidities? How old were they? What was their health status? And it's like, they were people, period. And that's where I quickly learned that if I were to die from COVID, my death would be completely dismissed because I have pre-existing conditions. That's just so heavy. It's completely wrong. That's the thing. But thankfully, I know that there's people who wouldn't do that. But the vast majority would. And that is very, very bad. And I feel really thankful to know that, to have this mask off. Because before the pandemic started, I wouldn't have expected that. Now, holy shit. I've sure learned a lot about the society I live in and the people who say that they're nice or the people who seem friendly. Mm -hmm. Now I get to see exactly how they feel. The masks are off. This really underpins this whole concept of the use of frames and how the government is really depending on the presence of that ableism and the presence of some cognitive dissonance on behalf of the people who are witnessing the horrors of the pandemic all around them and desperately need an explanation other than the government's lying to me or that I'm a horrible person. They need another option. And the other option is these people were going to die anyway. 
we hear about the concept of deaths borrowed from the future, like that somehow makes it all right. And just like you said, Cheryl, it doesn't. Every single day that every one of us has is important. So is the government relying on like main character syndrome to make people like all act this way? Like people have convinced themselves that they're not bad people. Nobody thinks they're a bad person. So here I go, going about my day, me, the nice person who could not possibly harm anyone else. Nobody else around me is wearing masks. It's not required anymore. And so it does not make me a bad person to go into this shop or show up at this thing without a mask, even though I know that New Brunswickers are still dying, but they're not young, healthy New Brunswickers. And so if I go to this thing without a mask, or if I go to this thing, even though I've got a tickle in my throat, that doesn't make me a bad person. And it's not that the government's lying to me. It's that this is actually normal has returned, except for those weirdos. They've they've used our egos against us. Well, our egos and ableism, because just like in I've received these comments, many people have, is that, well, if you're still worried about it or if you're at high risk, just stay home. Mm. So in other words, in that scenario, let's say I went to an event and I was wearing a mask, but one-way masking is not as effective. And someone went with a tickle in their throat. They weren't wearing a mask. I get COVID. Well, why was I there? I should have stayed home. I have pre-existing health conditions. That's my own fault. Why wasn't I away in my sick bed? Oh my gosh. That's so sad to think about. I'll just make a note too, because I've done some research on this previously, like a decade ago or more. And then I was reading an article this morning that kind of said the same thing, which is interesting. Generally, people have a terrible sense of their own health and are like overconfident in their own health. And so Mm -hmm. I was part of some research quite a long time ago, getting people to estimate how a diagnosis that they had affected their life expectancy. And they wildly overestimated their own life expectancies. And then I was reading something this morning. Somebody really nice had sent along this article basically about palliative care. It was in the New Yorker, like in 2010 or maybe even earlier than that. And it was talking about how physicians overestimate how much time terminal cancer patients have left to live. And the the more they know the patient, the better they know the patient, the less accurate their understanding is. Wishful thinking, they know this patient really well. They really like them. And they hope that that patient is going to get this extra time on this earth, despite all the clinical signs pointing to this person doesn't have much time left. So I think it's really interesting that people in general overestimate their own health and underestimate their own unhealth, I guess. And then even like the practitioners don't have an accurate sense of the health. Like it's just so fascinating. I think especially in the Maritimes, or or maybe it's a Canada-wide thing, but you really see that how we were raised, you know, those of us, I guess, millennials and and probably on upwards, my gosh, ableism was was how we were raised. It's really awful to think back to how our world was constructed. Ableism was everything. Attendance awards at school on to everything else, right? The fact that buildings aren't accessible, even just compassion for ourselves and compassion for others and understanding of like what it means to to live. Like the more I learn about ableism, the better my own, own understanding of the world becomes. And it's really, really shocking. 
I, I would say from just kind of thinking about this topic from a historical perspective, it's like, well, what is this culture that we live in? And for the Maritimes especially, there's a lot of links to British culture. There's a lot of ties there. And that's where New Brunswick was part of Nova Scotia. And it became its own province from the loyal adherence to the king of Britain. And that's how New Brunswick became its own province. There were a lot of strong ties and there still are a lot of strong ties to the UK. It's funny, even like in the foods that people have like normalized that they eat, like a lot of those are also normalized in Britain. But one of the things too is stashing sick people away. You put them in asylums, you put them in the lunatic places. And that's where for St. John, they had several. You just put them away. You put them in institutions. The family just puts them there. You don't even think about them. Like the queen put relatives in asylums that they never talked about. The queen did that. You know, like this is the culture that we live in. Someone's having a hard time functioning. Someone can't do well in society. Just put them away and you never have to visit them again. That's the culture that we live in. For in New Brunswick, for in schools, it was only in 1986 when inclusion was put into practice and children with special needs and additional needs were accepted and given space in general classrooms. 1986. It's this kind of thing that once you, once you see it, you just can't unsee it. And I'm sure there's always more to learn, right? There's always, there's always more to learn, but wow. Um, It's, it's shocking. We could do probably hours and hours on the use of framing just in disability circles over the years. And what is interesting and, and, and really beneficial from taking time to kind of try to understand framing is it helps in those circles when you are being introspective with yourself and taking a look at how you look at the world and what words you would use. Those are often words and concepts that were given to you through a framing mechanism, which sought to do exactly what Cheryl was saying hide the undesirable people away, hide the people who weren't quote unquote contributing to society away. We still hear it with people talking about like welfare lounging and, and, and these leeches on society and, and my taxes paying for someone as these are died into the wool of the culture. And it all it has been perpetuated through these fra- same framing mechanisms that we that we're talking about here. And that's where I think it's like, it's so good to talk about this and to look at these dark places and to really figure it out. Because this was the culture that a pandemic is occurring in. This ableist culture that has a history of throwing people away in institutions and never visiting them again. Yeah, for sure. And it's why we saw the Great Barrington Declaration, which is hardcore eugenics, be adopted widely by so many people who were seeking to get on to the next step because the pandemic affected them in a less severe way. At least they believed so. People were willing to be grouped in with the same type of individuals who created atrocities that they would actively denounce. But when it came to their own comfort day to day, they were perfectly fine with that. 
And now for listeners who may not be familiar with that term, um, the Great Barrington Declaration. Now, my understanding is it was like it was a group of different scientists and professors that came together and they published this paper. It was awful, awful, awful. And a lot of those awful, awful, awful recommendations were then incorporated into pandemic policy. Does that kind of sound about right? Well, one thing I'll note is that a little while ago, someone in Alberta had done a freedom of information request on some of the decision making that was done in Alberta around the removal of masks in schools. The government officials in Alberta actually cited and referred to the urgency of normal in their decision to take away masks. So these groups are all connected to, I think now they're kind of going by this Brownstone Institute name. And it's all like funded by right wing, very wealthy people, all connected in the same kind of circles. Great Barrington Declaration, Brownstone Institute. And the Brownstone Institute publishes lists of pandemic authors and and physicians. And they have a picture of a guillotine in the header. Like they have called for them. Oh, yeah. They've called for the murder of like people who vaccinate people. Like they've called for some. Oh, yeah. They've called for some like heinous stuff. Oh, yeah. It's really bad. It's really, really not good. And then some of these uh, really bad studies, these academically fraudulent studies that have come out recently of comparing respirators to masks or saying that masks don't work, et cetera. The people that are involved in those studies have links to these institutes, like some of the authors on those papers and those reviews are also members in these various institutes. So it's really, really nefarious stuff. There's a lot of money going into this and it's just ma- manufacturing this uncertainty so that perhaps in future court cases, they'll have these citations they can draw on where they can say, well, look, what was published in this journal? And it's this completely fraudulent article trying to establish that respirators and medical masks are equal, which is not at all true. And then there's a public health physician in BC who actually was on the original urgency of normal. That's the thing is, this isn't just a fringe group. Some of these groups have, as members, people who are actively working in public health, including in Canada, and and occupying positions where they have power and authority and, sadly, legitimacy within their governments, within the the public. It's, It's really terrible, like really terrible. The people involved are not doing this out of a pursuit of actual you know, scientific truth or empiricism at all. Like, and I sort of think to myself sometimes, because I think Chris mentioned this in the last episode, in order for you to know that things aren't on the up and up right now, you would have to go about five or six steps back and you'd have to have realized that there was something wrong with what we were being told about certain things like five or six steps ago. And if you didn't start to pick up that thread of, wait a minute, what we're being told by our government, by, let's say, our health minister, provincially, let's say our premier, let's say provincial public health, what we are being actively told in their own briefings, the stuff they control, right? They control the press conferences. They control the briefings that they release on their website. They control, you know, the message that gets out. So it's not like they're bungling this by accident. 
the communications that they're delivering to us are planned and executed by them with all the resources of the provincial government. And if you didn't start to pick up five or six steps ago that what they were telling us was not in concordance with published literature and what was known at the time, I don't know how you start to show this to somebody who hasn't already started to question things. How you get somebody from not wondering about this at all and not questioning any of it to realize the horrific extent to to which they've been misled. I think that comes back to people... I don't know if it was recorded, but I know it's what we were talking about earlier of someone wanting to continue eating fast food. No, no. (laughs) I I think that's the perfect anecdote right here. Yeah. This concept of a person being approached by another person concerned about fast food and its impact saying, do you know what this organization McDonald's does at their factory farms to their animals, this kind of thing. And the person who is hearing this says, do not tell me. I don't want to know. I like going to McDonald's and I want to keep going to McDonald's. It's a powerful urge in people to not be placed in a position of discomfort about something that makes them comfortable day to day. And these little things, like we, we, we ask ourselves questions like, are, are, they, are they relying on main character syndrome? Or are they conscious of ableism? To a large degree, I'd say yes, uh, in, in some of the more calculated moves for these communications. But at the same time, it's just a fact of, of human existence that, that we are like this. And because we are like this, that's what makes efforts, even unconscious efforts, to mislead to misdirect so successful, right? They, they know that they can be successful with this because people are people. Yeah, there's a reason why McDonald's still exists. There's a reason why people still buy clothes that are produced from Bangladesh. There's so many horrific atrocities that are continuing to happen before a pandemic that people happily gave their money to the people committing those crimes. It's, it's a complete cultural deconstruction, like to understand this culture that we're living in. A lot more things about this horrific pandemic response, unfortunately, make sense. For sure. And I know for myself, I've learned how much of the culture I wasn't a part of and how that has really affected the spaces that I can interact with. Where Canada and the United States does <laughs> market themselves as a safe place to be. And yes, it is definitely a safer place to be than places that are currently experiencing war and famine and incredible hardships. So people come here from the from different cultures. And then like I am so thankful to live in a space where I don't have to think about war, but then to live in this culture of all of the things that we've been talking about it's very strange like i I really don't know how to sit with that myself i'm still trying to figure that part out yeah i guess i i always kind of like made do before but now where it's affecting the way i can live my daily life where the majority of people are pretending that an airborne disease does not exist because they don't want it to anymore 
Yeah. And I think one of the benefits of looking at this stuff so closely, like we are and talking about it, is it provides some space for people to not be villains necessarily, right? It's it, they're, they're victims of their own human nature and they're victims of nefarious uh, rhetoric that is being purposely put out into their circles. But there is hope to be had because underneath all of that is essentially still a moral person. The whole reason that these kind of tactics have to be employed is because people are generally moral people and you have to get around that so that they'll do something that is immoral and not beat themselves up about it. Mm. That's the whole purpose of framing like we're talking about today. And you can take away like, oh, my God, this is psychological warfare. But you, you should also take to heart that this is the degree to which bad actors have to have to extend themselves to just get the population to do bad things. They're not going to do them on their own. That gap between people's morality and the actions that the state demands of them has to be cultivated. It's not natural. Wow. For most, for most people. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's outliers for sure. There's, you've been on the internet, there's a bunch of assholes out there in the world for sure. <laughs> But generally speaking, you know, that 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 big lump in the middle that those people wake up and they want to do the right thing. And and look, we found each other. And I I mean, when you listen to the podcast, you only hear from like the three of us with occasional guests. But it's not just the three of us that are trying to make things better in New Brunswick. There's like a lot of us and we found each other and we're awesome we're nice, we're funny, we're really generous people, but there are more people out there in every community who are just like us and we just haven't found each other yet. That's amazing what you just said, Chris, that really probably gives me the will to to live basically because it is really horrific when you look at the people holding these positions of power where it is on the books as being their job to not take actions that are going to harm the whole population that's the bare minimum and there's all kinds of fancy legal ways to say that but that's their job to not take courses of action that are going to harm everybody And they've done it. They've done it. And they've done it with a smile and they've done it with a shrug and they've done it with a wink. They've done it enthusiastically. And that is really brutal. And it's really hard on the heart. That really does help to think that they do have to put a lot of effort into manipulating people into hurting each other. That makes me feel like there surely has got to be a thousand different ways that we can hold up little mirrors and little signals and little reminders of if this had happened in 2021, you would have been apoplectic. Let's try to get some of that back. Let's try to get some of that care and that energy and that urgency and fervor to care for each other. Let's try to cultivate that again. Because this pretend normal, this like simulation of normal, but everybody is just sick. This isn't real. This isn't what we're being told it is. It's not worth it. It's not what it was in 2018. And it's not worth it. We could actually imagine something way better for all of us. So that gives me a lot of hope. I love, I love it. Yes. 
we saw something in New Brunswick this week that would have to be in like a movie about the pandemic. Well, I say New Brunswick, but it actually took place in Nova Scotia. I had happened to see online somebody commenting on um, Global News, which is one of Canada's like media companies, had run a story about the Halifax Chamber of Commerce. And the Halifax Chamber of Commerce had submitted this thing to the city of Halifax and had said, we're asking you to force your city employees back into the office more days a week, basically telling the city of Halifax, the fact that you are allowing people to work remotely as often as you are is harming our downtown businesses. And we think as part of post-pandemic recovery, it would make a big difference if you were to force people to, to work in the office more days a week. And so that was the Halifax Chamber of Commerce just recently in in April. And so, of course, those of us that are paying attention to this were like, whoa, this is really horrible. Like, that's bad. That's no good. And then a couple of days later, Global News in Halifax had to put out a statement online from one of their employees saying, hey, the morning news program is canceled for this one day because everyone has COVID or a cold. And people were gobsmacked. People from all over the world, like some people were like, oh my gosh, this person is going to get in trouble for having even said the COVID word, you know, or some people pointed out the fact that the worker had included the colds part because that makes it sound better than just saying that everybody has COVID. So it, it really attracted like a ton of attention. The other thing too, was that they said, we'll be back on the air tomorrow. And so people picked up on that right away. Like if you have so many people out with COVID on Thursday, you can't safely run your program on Friday. That's not how this works. You're still going to be sick. And, you know, people could get long COVID from forcing themselves to work. And so that was just interesting on its own, right? That in April, 2023, somebody would be that honest to actually come out and say, COVID has ripped through our whole workforce to the point that we're unable to do our job. And that's a pretty unique job. That's not like me flipping the sign over at my tiny store saying, oh, I'll be back tomorrow. Like this is a whole morning news program for the most populated part of the, of the Maritimes. So I was really curious on Friday. I was like, man, I've never watched the global news program in the morning in my life. I'm going to tune in because I'm really curious to see what they're going to do about their whole news staff having COVID. So I turned it on on Friday and they did a follow-up about the Chamber of Commerce. And this is the weirdest thing. And I think that this fits in with the framing. Nobody mentioned that remote work was because of COVID. Nobody mentioned that remote work could plausibly continue because of COVID concerns. They interviewed two city councillors and both city councillors said, well, we're in a climate crisis and it wouldn't be appropriate to make people commute into the office during a climate crisis. And like, I also would like to fight the climate crisis. But this just seemed so ludicrous that the only reason that we have remote work in the Maritimes right now is because of COVID. They couldn't say it. They could not acknowledge that there might be potential COVID considerations still at play with having people work remotely. And this is the same morning newscast presenting this segment that had just had their whole show canceled from COVID the day before. I don't even think that you could put that in a fictional movie. It, it's just too much. But there it is. Man, oh man. I, it, that's exactly it. Like if that was in a movie, it would be completely unbelievable. It would turn from like a serious movie to a comedy. It would be like, what? 
what's going on here? Nobody would believe it. But that's sort of a hyperbolic version of what we're talking about, right? About the, about the individual. Like you would never believe that you could hold those two concepts at the same time, but you do. And the only reason that that occurs is down to a lot of subtle nudging along the way that lets you build up a third story, which explains that gap. You can actively contribute to chains of transmission. You can understand logically that chains of transmission eventually get down to somebody who is going to be harmed by them. And you can absolve yourself of it due to a very comfortable story that you've been told with very comforting language. That makes a lot of sense. Seems to make a lot of sense. Stable and mild, the comforting language. The other eerie sensation that I got, I mean, like probably most people our age that don't have cable and don't regularly watch this, where do I get my news? I would never turn on a televised news program because I just don't, that doesn't fall into the rhythm of my day, right? Like I grew up with my parents watched the news and I was like, I want to watch the Ninja Turtles. And they were like, no, the news is on. You know, watching the nightly news is something my parents did. I don't want to sit still and have people talk at me for half an hour or an hour. I want to read something and I want to read it quickly. So I don't get my news from televised broadcasts. I'm not a video watcher, even on the the internet. I'd much rather read. And so I really felt this eerie sensation watching that piece, knowing the context, knowing that their whole workplace had been shut down the day before for their news segment, which I understand that's not my demographic, but that's somebody's demographic. To have to not do a morning news show, that's quite a big deal. And then to see them not address the COVIDness of it all in a fully pandemic story, you know, commercial real estate, chambers of commerce trying to coerce people back into 2018 type of behaviors and spending. That's a fully super pandemic story mm-hmm. and for it to just be like twisted to the point that they didn't even mention the pandemic or COVID concerns or like, I don't even think they mentioned why remote work was a thing. And it made me feel, though, like if I really had come into this with an organized plan of actually being an effective COVID communicator, which I didn't, I should have been watching the normal person news because then I would probably understand better why what's going on around us is going on around us. Because for me, it's like if I want to find out what's happening with COVID, I'm going to go and load up like Joe Vipon's timeline or Dr. Prasada or... I would go and load up some of the long COVID advocates. I would go and look at uh, T. Ryan Gregory. You know, I would go and look at some of the people who have been consistently right over the past three years about what's happening and who understand reality and are able to communicate that reality. That's what I would do if I needed to know what was going on with COVID. But what is 99.9% of the population doing when they want to know what's happening? Because they don't even want to know what's happening with COVID. They just want to see the news. They're going on maybe MSN or they're going on Yahoo or they're going on the Daily Mail or they're turning on the TV. And I think that if I consumed regular person news, then I think I would understand more because it was like weird. Like I spend so much of my time reading about pandemic stuff and engaging in the kinds of conversations that we're having right now. So for me to see a news story that's completely about the pandemic, but pretends that it's not It was so weird, but I also understood so much of why we're in the pickle that we're in right now. 
Well, and that's where I think, oh, this reminds me of um, when I started to get more involved in Twitter and accessing my news. I really noticed the difference before the pandemic when there were acts of solidarity happening with the land issues happening in Wet'suwet'en. And that was in the winter of 2020. I remember I was following that closely with various native Twitter accounts and following like specifically what was happening. And there were like RCMP invasions on their land. And then I remember listening to a news broadcast. How did they frame it? Because at that time, there were acts of solidarity happening across the country in shutting down access to trains and to rail yards because they were showing a solidarity with the invasions of peaceful Wet'suwet'en land. And then the local broadcaster framed it as this local business is really being affected because they don't have access to goods by rail. The end. They didn't even talk about why they didn't have access to that. They didn't even talk about the acts of solidarity. They didn't even talk about why there were delays in the rail happening. None of that happened. And I remember listening to that and being like, wow. And guaranteed they wouldn't be talking about the grievances of those Indigenous people and what brought them to those serious levels of acting. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Like it was an incredible movement that was happening that was being reported by the people from the people. And it was an incredible movement. And then to hear it locally broadcast as that issue, it was absolutely appalling. (sighs) My gosh, yeah. That's right. I was I was looking at when the resistance to the fracking was happening in New Brunswick. I was all over reading about that. And it's so true, right? You did have to expand your, you know, your news sources in order to get the full perspective of what was happening. Really horrifying. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm thinking, I know there's a ton of things that I would like to continue on. I feel like there's so much more that I know I want to say. And most likely other folks want to say, so I'm thinking that um, when it comes to societal constructs and all of the things that we're living in and the culture that we're living in, I'm thinking this is definitely a to be continued. But for now, why don't we share some final thoughts and then we'll call her a day. Um, Kay, final thoughts? Yeah, there's an organization called CanCOVID, cancovid.ca. And in February, they had released a report talking about the use of language and the pandemic. And I'm just going to read out the title of it. And this would be an awesome part two for this topic. How language shapes change, perspectives on the most and least effective communication strategies and tactics during the COVID-19 pandemic. It was published February 16th, 2023. So it's really recent. It's a fascinating read. If you're listening to this podcast, I just highly recommend loading up that PDF and just taking a glance through it. It actually has in it some pretty incisive stuff, a very critical of Canada's response. And they interviewed a bunch of anonymized but key people in the field of communications. And one of the points that gets brought up in these anonymized interviews, somebody was like, they really directly called out the fact that schools stopped with contact tracing, 
with outbreak announcements, with testing, schools universally in Canada stopped accepting reports from parents about positive cases of, in students, and then they dropped masks. Somebody in this report directly called that out. And it's the kind of like honesty and forthrightness that is really missing from, for example, a lot of the journalism around COVID. And it it really relates to a lot of what we've been talking about today. So cancovid.ca. And if you just look at the reports, it's a really interesting report. And I think if, if you're somebody who is starting on this path of, wait now, what we've been told about the pandemic, about the risks, about the hazards, about the effective ways that we can protect ourselves and our communities isn't really lining up with what I'm hearing from the evidence. That report actually would be a really good first step into learning more about how our governments have chosen to communicate with us. So that's my thought. Amazing. Amazing. Chris, final thoughts? Yeah, we'll link that in the show notes. We'll put a link right to that report. Yeah, I guess I would just kind of give people some homework. Think back to the main talking points of the pandemic. Think about what was said. Listen to the official narrative on the rare instances that we actually got uh, communications from from them. Listen to what was said and kind of evaluate the weight of its implication, but also listen for what got left out because so many of these comments are just as often intended to turn public attention away from something concerning uh, as much as they are intended to turn them toward something concerning. I love it. Well, and I hate it. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. And I suppose my final thoughts would be to keep learning, to keep reading, to keep deconstructing and understanding what's going on. And I know for myself through this discussion, I realize that there's definitely some things that I want to learn more about. I guess I always kind of come away from these discussions like that. Even though I'm part of this project, I know that there's so much more for me to learn. I see that as a really good thing because I can just keep on learning more information. And thankfully, all of that information is accessible and readily available. And I would say also that when it comes to the information that I am choosing to consume, boots on the ground, hearing from people who are directly affected, and that's what you're listening to right now. Kay, Chris, myself, we are all folks, boots on the ground, living this and talking about it. We all come from different places and we're all meeting up here. And we're openly and honestly sharing our stories. And I hope that you come away from this knowing a little bit more and wanting to learn more as well. I know I definitely feel that way. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. We so much appreciate it. Also, if you would like to engage with our social media to let us know what you think, we can be found on Instagram and Twitter at a pan pod, a p a n p o d. And if you leave a review, we love to read them. And when you leave reviews, it can help bring more people to the show and it can help more people realize that a pandemic is still happening and there are folks still talking about it. So thank you, thank you so much. And until next time, stay healthy. 
stay safe and know that you're not alone because we are all in this together. And we look forward to chatting again next time.